Would you please stand with me as we read? Our parable this morning comes from the first part of chapter 18 of Luke. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The word of the Lord. Cody Seward is a 17-year-old football player who, in a recent game, returned to the sidelines after having made an important block in a play and to the accolades. Well done. Nice block. The coach praising uh, his performance on the field. And it was only as he reached the sidelines and turned around that he realized that the person that he had hit, a boy by the name of Tyrell, hadn't gotten up. And so the game paused and the trainers headed out, but the trainers were followed quickly by uh, a call for the paramedics. And then the ambulance headed out on the field and they cut open Tyrell's jersey and began CPR and loaded him quickly into the ambulance and drove off. There's only 17 minutes left in the game. And by the end of the game, which of course nobody wanted to go back to play, it was reported back to the players that Tyrell didn't make it. He had been killed, his neck broken, and internal bleeding had uh, ended his life quickly in the midst of this high school football game. You can imagine, Cody, this game that he loves, that he plays, that he engages in, suddenly the questions of, why, why me? Why, why him? Why now? Why did I have to make this block? It was a completely standard block, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing that would make you think that it would result in the end of a life, and yet, of course, it was the most disruptive thing to Cody's life that had ever happened. So he began to wrestle with these questions. He, he didn't really want to play football, but he went on. As, uh, as the week goes on, he goes back to the team because it's his whole life. Right? It's what he does. All his friends are on the football team. He looks forward to the games. That's where his identity exists, and he finds himself back there and and notices various things like the slogan that uh, exists in the locker room, which reads, The measure of a man is the will to fight and fight and then fight some more, because surrender is death and death is for the weak. He began to contemplate pregame prayers that would go over the loudspeakers where someone would pray, Lord, protect these athletes and make them strong for the battle. 
And Cody, reflecting on football, would say, now it's kind of like I'm playing but not feeling all the things I used to feel. Cody's coaches, the players, the people gathered around him, would say, well, Cody's in shock. He's dealing with this massive loss. You know, he's, he'll have to find his way over time. But perhaps Cody was waking up for the first time. Perhaps Cody was asking the best questions he had ever asked in his life. Do, is, uh, is death just for the weak? Is, uh, is football uh, the battle for which the Lord needs to prepare one? Right, slogans that, that Cody bought into day in and day out as he trained for these various events and these, uh, the, the, the collision of teams suddenly seemed empty and somewhat meaningless as a result of Tyrell's death. The parable that we're considering this morning is, uh, comes out of a discussion about the kingdom. People were debating when the kingdom is coming. When is the king going to show up? Is Jesus the king? If he is the king, then he should be able to tell us when the kingdom is going to arrive. We're interested in the kingdom showing up and setting everything to rights. Jesus says, no, that's not really the way that it's going to unfold. It's going to be a bit more unpredictable than that. And so Jesus, in the midst of this dialogue about the kingdom coming and the delay that will occur, tells a story in which the intent that he has for the story for the people is, is right, right at the front of the parable. There's no mistaking what Jesus is after. He says that uh, Luke tells us that he tells the parable so that we would pray faithfully and not lose heart. That's Jesus' goal. Listen, there's going to be a delay. You need to pray faithfully and not lose heart in the midst of your prayers. And so he tells a story of a young widow that is the example of persistence, or is supposed to be the example of persistence to us. Now, you may think of the widow as old, but she's not necessarily old. Girls would marry in Jesus' day around 13 or 14. And death often came early to individuals. So she might be a teenager as a widow. But what we know of the ancient world and what the Bible itself makes clear is that there's really no one who is, uh, is, is more um, liable to be taken advantage of than a widow. In fact, the Old Testament says the only person in greater danger of being taken advantage of is an orphan. And God's people were always called upon to care for both. But this widow who has some complaint against an adversary, she isn't being treated justly, goes to the judge to make her complaint. But the judge, you see, is neither a respecter of God nor of man. He really doesn't care what the widow has to say. And because the widow is powerless, it doesn't really matter. Answering her request isn't going to do anything for him. So initially he ignores her. But the widow keeps coming back and is incredibly persistent and makes her petition again and again and again. Eventually wears down the judge. She's a bother to the judge. And the actual word there is, uh, was a kind of idiom in the ancient world. It means literally to give the judge a black eye. Right? In other words, her, her petitioning was so draining over time that it was like a physical injury. It was that bothersome. And of course, the judge, not wanting to go down that road anymore, eventually says, fine, I'm going to grant you the justice you, just to get you out of my way and to get you to stop bothering me. So is that the lesson here? 
Are we supposed to petition God to such an extent that uh, we give him a black eye? Or at least he feels like he's got a black eye because we show up making the same request day in and day out, and God is so weary of our request that he finally says, yeah, you can have what you need. Doesn't that sit a little bit wrong? Just not quite to seem right about the character of God? And isn't Jesus drawing clearly some, some difference between the characters of the judge and God? The judge, on one hand, is no respecter of man or God, but Jesus is saying that, no, God is, um, will deliver his justice speedily. He will not delay. He loves and cares for those who are his chosen people. So what is the lesson here? Well, it seems to be that Jesus is after the notion that we would be persistent in our petitions made to God. That we would be persistent as we come to him. And yes, sometimes make the same request over and over again. Is your prayer life characterized by persistence? By the repetition of requests made to God, because clearly that's the exhortation here, is it really, or do you, is your life characterized by persistence, or do you tend to give up over time? You know, what's been interesting about midweek as we gather to pray on Wednesday at the end of each midweek is to hear the children pray and what a delight and encouragement as they've, if they've taken that role on more each week. But each week there are prayers that are for Hamaswamidas to be able to come home and prayers for ISIS to be defeated and prayers for the Muslim world to be converted. And each week they get prayed again and I, I'm convicted and I'm challenged that, yeah, I kind of lose heart in praying those prayers. They're hard to keep praying. Because we don't necessarily see an answer. God seems distant. And do I really believe that uh, God is going to convert the Muslim world and show them the truth of Jesus? Or I've been praying for a year now for Hannah to get green card status so she could stay and be unhindered. And that just seems to be delayed and delayed. And so do, do I give up in that prayer or do I remain persistent in it? How would you characterize your prayer life? Is persistent actually a word that you could use to characterize what you do? It's persistence that characterizes the widow. And we have to ask first, well, why is she persistent? She would only be persistent if she believed two things. A, that the judge uh, actually had the power to remedy her situation. And B, that her persistence will actually be effective over time. If she didn't believe either of those things, then she would not be persistent. There would be no reason to be. And so if you are not persistent in your prayer, if we back up, then do you not believe that God is able? Or do you not believe that your persistence will actually affect anything? You have to not believe one of those things to actually not be persistent in your prayer. Do you believe that God is even listening? How many times have you been disappointed in praying for the saving of a loved one? Not only spiritually, but the rescue of someone from death, or for a child, or for the health of your family, or for a job, only to receive what you perceive to be silence. God not not answering you, not even meeting you, not even saying, hey, I'd really like to give you this, but not right now. And what do we do in the midst of that disappointment? Well, so often I think the reality is we just back away. It hurts to feel like you're not loved. 
It hurts to feel like God doesn't care. And so why enter into that place of pain? It's easier simply not to pray at all. Yeah, this is the opposite of what Jesus is after. This notion of persistence seems important, and we have to ask why. Why would God want us to be persistent? Why wouldn't God just deliver what we ask when we ask it? And I'm not talking about silly requests like, God, I'd really like a Ferrari. You know, please deliver that to me. Right? This is the, the, the case in point here is a, is a request for justice against an adversary, a widow who's being taken advantage of. So it's hardly a light or random request that doesn't deserve attention. Why is it that when we make significant requests that we think are in full accordance with God's will, that He doesn't answer them? If you don't know the answer to that question, then you're never going to pray. Because I guarantee you, God's not going to answer lots of your prayers. He's exhorting us right here to be persistent. So there must be some value in persistence. Do you understand what that value is? Theologians have pointed out, and perhaps no one better than Jonathan Edwards, that persistence is essential to actually deepening relationship. If you were to go to God and make whatever request, even if all your requests were completely in line with the will of God, and He was to deliver on those requests immediately, then you would treat God as nothing other than an ATM machine. You wouldn't need relationship. You would simply show up and say, here's my request, thank you very much, I'll see you the next time that I have a need or want to make a request. But by God saying no, he actually facilitates the opportunity for worship. Even Edwards has this example. What if we prayed for the most noble, righteous thing we could possibly conceive of? What do you think that is? Edwards says the most noble prayer that we can ever pray is to experience more of God's glory. But he says God says no all the time. Now why would God say no to you in terms of experiencing God's glory? Edward says the problem is that we so often ask with the wrong motives. That we want to experience something sensational. Like it's all about the titillating experience that God's glory would come down and we would, we would have this, this otherworldly encounter. And that's what we want. Or we want to feel powerful or better than people around us by having this experience of God. And if God said yes, it would be a terrible thing for you. Instead, he says no, that you might have to labor over not only what you're asking, but why you are asking. And in that very labor, you get drawn deeper into relationship with him as he takes apart your false motives. And in that, it's an act of grace and mercy rather than a lack of kindness. And at one level, you get this. Say a, a daughter is begging for more time to spend with her mother. Mom, can't we hang out? Can't we go out for a date? I want to have a lunch just with you. And the mom who is savvy understands that The daughter wants this experience so that she can turn around and lord it over her sisters. Right? That's her agenda. You know, mom took me on a date. She loves me more than she loves you. And so for the mother to grant that request, which seems noble, I just want to spend more time with you, mom, would not be kindness. It would be awful. It would be awful for the daughter and it would be awful for the rest of the family. So on a human level, you can easily recognize that a weighing of motives is essential to actually loving someone and whether or not you're going to grant a request. So how could we not say that the weighing of motives on God's part is an absolutely loving act and His invitation to persistence in prayer 
maybe the very way that he takes us apart and puts us back together again in a way that looks a lot more like Jesus. In a way that's good for us and good for the world. But are you persistent? Do you believe that God wants you to keep asking? And God wants you to keep asking why you're asking. You see, if we recognize that there's a lack of persistence, we have to recognize that there's a lack of other things as well. If there's a lack of persistence, then there's really a lack of relationship. Right? So let me not beat around the bush. What I'm saying to you right now is, if you're not persistent in prayer, you don't really have a very deep relationship with God. I was excited to read that Michael Phelps is coming back for the Rio Olympics. Not only is he coming back, but he is supposedly in the best shape of his life. Surprising, even after his last Olympic appearance, granted, he's the most decorated Olympian in history, but his last performance was considered disappointing. It was considered the end of his career. He kind of spiraled down after the last Olympics. And he said he wasn't going to Rio. So what happened? Well, a little while ago, uh, Phelps got a DUI in Baltimore. He was significantly over the limit and driving erratically. And so it was decided that he had better go seek some help and start to wrestle with some of his demons. And he ended up at Meadowbrook, which is a high-end treatment facility for various addictions. And what Phelps starts to wrestle with there is not that he's got this insane drinking problem, but he's filled with anger. And he's filled with hurt, and it's mostly centered around his dad. His parents divorced at nine, and he felt abandoned by his dad, who had missed several of his biggest performances over the years for various reasons. And so here you have the most decorated Olympian in human history, and he's sad and lonely and disappointed and trying to drown his sorrows in alcohol. And he goes to rehab, where he spends a lot of time in counseling, and he comes out and the, you know, one of the first calls he makes is to his dad. And he said, Dad, you know, I'm disappointed. I'm sad that you were divorced. I'm sad that you were distant. Um, but I need a dad, and I'd like you to be back in my life right now. And so their relationship begins to, to flourish again as they come back together. But what I want you to know is that Phelps, in his anger and his rage, his disappointment at his father, he totally pushes him away. And keeps him at a very great distance over all of the decades that will ensue until this moment when they come back together. And now Phelps comes out of of Meadowbrook with uh, renewed energy and focus. And is expected to, again, blow away the competition in Rio. What happened in this transformation is that when he starts to go through this counseling, he comes to the point where he realizes that Of course, there was no petitioning of his father. He didn't even ask his father to be present at so many things. Why? Because he wasn't interested in a relationship. He was too hurt. And so he wouldn't demand it. And so by way of analogy, so often when we are disappointed and hurt by the way that our Heavenly Father would not grant the request that we make or would seem to be distant from our desires, we push him at arm's length. We keep him away, but we have to realize that when we stop being persistent, when we stop making those demands, really what we're saying is, I don't really want a relationship with you. And in the midst of that will only be more despair. Persistence is a necessary way for us to actually facilitate that relationship. But we could also say, 
where there is no persistence, there is really no hope, or at least there's not hope in God. If you cease being persistent in prayer, you're really starting to say, I don't believe God can come through, or I don't believe He wants to come through. And so to be safe and secure, I'm going to start to locate my hope elsewhere, wherever that may be. I watched a a great movie recently, which... um, it's a little, little rough, so, but not, it's, I hate using movies as references because somebody goes and watches it and be like, I can't believe you watched that. It's okay. If you're an adult, you can watch it. It's the end of the affair, and it's uh, the story of um, the, the end of the book tour for David Foster Wallace. So a little background. In 1996, David Foster Wallace was large, largely unknown. Maybe if you were really in literary circles, you knew who he was. Largely unknown, he writes a book called Infinite Jest, and book reviews start coming out which basically say uh, you can close down uh, accepting uh, submissions for the book awards this year. They've all been won. The the, uh, reviews of Infinite Jest were so over-the-top positive, uh, likening uh, David Foster Wallace to the great American authors of the last century. He's widely considered the greatest author of my generation. Uh, Wallace would continue forth and um, was widely known to struggle with depression and ultimately a few years ago took, sadly took his own life. Um, and so we don't have his ongoing contri- contribution in that way. But this movie focuses on the end of the book tour w- that happened with Infinite Jest back in 96. And one of the writers for Rolling Stone named David Lipsky is sent out on a tour with him, right, to go around to finish the tour with him and to hear who he is, who this great author is that seemingly kind of walked out of nowhere. They know that he spent time in a facility previously. And the rumor is that David Foster Wallace has has this terrible run-in with heroin, this deep heroin addiction. So the movie is mostly about the relationship that forms between Lipsky and Wallace. And Lipsky, who's the writer for Rolling Stone, is insanely jealous of Wallace. Right, this is the guy who has come out and written the book that every author on the face of the planet wants to write. And Wallace is saying, you know, it's not that great being on this side of, of being grand, of receiving all that attention. And it, at one point, they're fighting a little bit over a girl, and their argument, their tension reaches a climax. And Lipsky said, you know, Wallace, you pretend to be simple. You pretend that everybody else thinks just like you do. And, but that's such a phony act. You are one of the most insightful people that, have, that is of our generation, and you've written a book to prove it. And, and Wallace goes, you know, I really don't believe that's true. And the reason I don't think I believe that's true is that I used to believe that was true. And as my writing started to receive attention, and I reached my late 20s, the thought occurred to me that I had done everything significant that I was going to do, and I was so overcome with sadness. I was so deeply depressed that there was no heroin addiction. I was just sad. And I ended up in a room that was tiled with nothing in it because I knew I was going to hurt myself. And it was at that moment that I realized that I didn't know anything, that all of my smartness and all of my perceived insightfulness and all of my perceived wisdom had led me to a facility that was keeping me from hurting myself. 
How could I put confidence in that? And now that I find myself here on this tour where everyone at every turn is praising me as the greatest writer of my generation, I am scared to death that I will believe it again because I know where that road leads and I will end up right back to where I was. Wallace knew deeply for his age and for his experience that he had placed hope in a certain thing, that he would be uh, made by his accomplishments, that he would be made by his writing. And if he could just write that particular book or that particular essay, then he would be established. But by going down that road, he knew that that crushed him. And he wouldn't place his hope there again. It's an example of the reality that we're all placing our hope somewhere. We're called to place our hope in the midst of our persistence to prayer to God, in God. But if we stop doing that, if we say, God, you're not coming through, I'm going to place my hope elsewhere, then we begin to hope in various things that we think that promise us something, and we go down the road that Wallace would warn us of. I know that road, and hope located in something like that only leads to a tiled room in which you'll have to be prevented from doing further harm to yourself. There is only one person that delivers true hope, and that is the triune God. And to the degree that your hope deviates from Him is the degree to which you are committed to harming yourself. If you are not persistent in your prayer, your hope exists elsewhere. You're praying to something else. Lastly, if you are not persistent in your prayer, then you are not interested in justice. And here we must consider briefly Job, who is is one of the books that every Christian must do business with and we must keep in mind readily. Because Job is a person who is not only thinks he's righteous, God actually says he's righteous, that he's done really well. And then challenged by Satan, God decides to strip Job of everything. I will take your family, I will take your wealth, and I will take your health. And let's see what's left at the end of the day. Job, at the end of the day, refuses to curse God and die. But what does he do? He's persistent. He orders his case. He petitions God day in and day out as his friends gather to give him bad advice. He says over and over again to God, I have been wrong, God. If you show up in a courtroom with me, I will be vindicated over you. There is not a jury in the land that will decide with you over me because you have allowed this to happen to me for no reason. Job will not stop being persistent. He knows the one from whom he must demand justice. He knows the only one who can grant justice. And at the very end, when God shows up, Job says, oh, I've had no idea what I've been talking about. And for the first time, I thought that I knew you, but now, now I actually do. My ears have been opened, my eyes see, this is who you are, and now I will be very quiet. Job's persistence reveals his commitment to justice, but not justice as he would define it, justice as God defines it. And that's the great danger too, isn't it, in not being persistent? It's how often do we decide not to be persistent because as Jesus says, God will be just and God will, will not delay And we said, no, I want justice in my way, and I want it done in my time. And that's not the way God works. He doesn't dance to your tune. And it's in his delay, 
And it's in his commitment to justice as he perceives it that you're actually blessed. That Job actually comes awake and knows God for the first time even though he thought he knew him. If you are not persistent, then you do not desire a relationship with God. If you are not persistent in your prayer, your hope lies elsewhere. And if you are not persistent in prayer, then you are not really committed to God's justice. You may be committed to your own, but not God's. Cody, who is the boy who took Tyrell's life through a random block in a football game, kind of continued to spiral uh, and not do well uh, in the days following that hit. Eventually, counsel would be brought in, and he would actually, they actually brought in a football player who had done the same thing about 25 years earlier to talk to him. But the point of healing came when Cody went to the funeral. The entire football team actually went to the funeral and asked to see the mother of uh, Tyrell, the boy who had died before the service. And they met in a room off to the side in the church that day, and they presented the mother with a check that said, we're sorry, this is just a small token of how sorry we are that you've lost your boy. And they, they went through a line and, and expressed their condolences. And it was Cody who was at the end of the line and didn't want to be there. Right? Can you imagine at 17, year old, 17 years old meeting the mother of the child that you had accidentally taken the life of on the football field? And uh, Tyrell's mother swept Cody up into a big hug. And she said, it's okay. And in that moment, what, what Tyrell's mother did was absorb the loss of her son, and grant forgiveness to, uh, to Cody, right? And that is why we need to be persistent in prayer. Because the person we're persistent with is the one who sweeps us into a great hug and absorbs the loss that we have created unto himself. He absorbs that we take the life of his son unto himself so that he can enfold us in his arms and say, it's okay, and it's going to be okay. It's him that we trust. Who else, to whom else would you pray? To whom else would you be persistent in prayer? Be persistent this week. Run to him in prayer and pray to him over and over again and delight in the way that you experience hope and relationship and justice. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have loved us to extents that we cannot fathom, and yet our lack of love to you is demonstrated in our lack of prayer. So many of us who are gathered here this morning do not pray, or we pray occasionally, or we pray only when we have need, but we do not petition you persistently. We do not dare to dream and to hope in real relationship with you. We locate our hope elsewhere. We want our own justice. We ask that you would forgive us for the ways in which we are wayward. We ask that you would would reach down and speak to those gathered here this morning and that you would crack open their hearts and that you would press home that if they do not pray and are not persistent in prayer, then their faith is largely illusion. And may they grow tired of that illusion and desire to know you truly. So call us to be people of prayer. Help us by your spirit. Give to us what we cannot manufacture. Call us into relationship with you. And may we be persistent 
in that pursuit. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.